0: Have you ever stopped to think that virtually everything we use in our daily lives is based on technology? Even further, do you understand the software behind this technology? Welcome to The Art of Software with Martin Lacy. In today's program, you'll hear how software is created and implemented, why it's written the way it is, and learn from its success stories, proven best practices, and significant failures. Now, here is your host, Martin Lacy.
1: Hi, I'm Martin Lacy. Welcome to the Art of Software. Today we're going to be covering practical AI using AI artificial intelligence for software modernization. And we've got Peter Elger with us today, who's co-founder and CEO of 4Theorem, formerly a physicist working at Jet Project. And Peter was previously a co-founder and CTO of Stitchit Ads, uh, a social advertising platform and near forms at Node.js consultancy. Uh, Peter holds a degree in theoretical physics and computer science. He's co-author of uh, the Node Cookbook and several dynamic uh, ac- academic papers on software methodology. Uh, his latest book, AI as a Service, is available for Manning uh, Publishers right now. Publications, and we're going to be giving away um, three copies of that book today, uh, as well as um, providing a, a discount coupon for our listeners uh, who don't who aren't lucky enough to, to get the three free free uh, discount codes, free free codes. I mean, there is a 40% uh, discount opportunity. Um, So uh, let me just sort of tell you what we're going to talk about. Um, In today's show, we're going to explore the growth of AI uh, as a technology that makes it available to adopt and exploit. Um, We'll look at the evolution of software and its decomposition of functional access points from monolithic to cloud services. Uh, We'll come to understand what serverless architecture is and how you can approach that paradigm shift. Uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, neural networks—all uh, can be adopted readily now and can be used to enhance and modernize your business applications. Um, so we'll look at how how you can do that, practical, practically, and um, uh, Peter will help guide us through that that understanding of where the technology is now, how it evolved, where it, how it got here. Um, so he's going to give us the the full backstory as well as. You know, where we are today. So without further ado, um, I'd like to introduce Peter and uh, welcome to the show, Peter.
2: Thanks, Martin. Uh, great, great to be here. Great to talk to you and uh, appreciate the opportunity.
1: Yeah, this is uh, really cool. You're at the forefront of, um, you know, software modernization now. And, uh, you know, there's been quite a history in how we got here. And I was wondering if you could um, kind of walk us through, uh, how we've evolved. Uh, we've had some really great conversations uh, previously talking with um, uh, your, your, your friend uh, Richard Rogers about, uh, you know, the art of microservices and getting those built out. So perhaps if you could walk us through how we got up to microservices and, and you know, that whole evolution into um,
2: where we are now. Yeah, sure. I can certainly give you my view. Uh, yeah, well absolutely. <laughs> whether that aligns with, with everyone's, uh, we all have opinions, right? But um, I suppose I, I've been in the software industry for, for more years than I care to remember now. So I started off writing code in the mid-80s. Yes. Uh, um, so that, that long ago, right? Um, and my first kind of real coding was Fortran or Vax. Um, but I guess when you look at the... My, my, I, 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 as I came out of college, um, my real kind of work was in, uh, as you mentioned earlier, in uh, nuclear fusion research. So I was doing a lot of work, very low level, and then kind of um, also up the stack. So device drivers, uh, net, you know, network stack code, uh, middlewares, and so on. Yes. And a lot of it kind of being written in, uh, in C, uh, and assembly. Okay. Uh, but as, we, uh, as time progressed, I adopted C++ more. Okay. Uh, and started to uh, started to adopt that as a language. Um, as I moved in, into the commercial domains, I suppose I started writing Java. And um, I guess like everybody, I drank the object-oriented Kool-Aid. Uh, <laughs> yes, and, yeah. <laughs> sure, right. So I was, I, I was a C++ nerd at one time and, and then a Java nerd. And I bought all the patterns books and, uh, and so on and thought, you know, this is great. Um, but I think over the time as an industry, we came to understand that that was really not a, not the best approach uh, because it led to a lot of um, very large and coupled code bases. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we had that whole kind of thing of, well, let's configure stuff in XML or let's even program in XML if you ever did AMP, right?
1: Right. Uh, or, you know, XSLT, right? So you're writing your own uh,
2: transformations. Yeah, not a good idea, right? Um, but I remember <laughs> doing it at the time, right? So I'm as guilty as everybody. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think that we, we we came to understand as an industry that that's probably not the best way to do things, right? Because we have these very large monolithic code bases. And over time, uh, as you know, they suffer from software entropy and come very hard to maintain and to bring mm-hmm. forth. The cost becomes astronomical. And I think that's why we saw the, the, you know, the, the reversion back to uh, now, the term microservices um, is, is one I don't really like, but it's okay, a convenient okay. hook to hang things on, right? So we kind yeah. of roughly have a common understanding of what we're talking about. Um, but to me, it's, it's more a return to good engineering practice. Um, if you look at uh, if you look at the the kind of early ways that we used to the code, uh, these the Unix command line is a great example, right, of a microservice system. In the sense that you have a number of small processes, and each one does one thing well. Exactly. And, yes. And interoperate well. Okay. And I think as an industry, we kind of lost our way for a for a number of years um, with with the whole kind of .dot NET stack and J two E and all this kind of stuff.
1: Um, part of the be, packaging became almost the thing. So the packages became larger and larger.
2: That's right, and and and. and unwieldy and difficult to maintain. Yeah. Now, I, I kind of understand in a way, because if you think at the time that was being done, um, we didn't have as much compute power as we do today. We didn't have the more sophisticated tooling that we have today. Mm-hmm. So I think it was almost, you almost needed um, cloud and containers to be available for the kind of microservice paradigm to, be, to, to really um, to really take hold, right? Right. Uh, and that, that kind of shift, or that availability of of technology, then made it possible to uh, to do to build these types of systems without having an enormous overhead of uh, you know operations team behind you to do it.
1: Like an so, object database, you know that that was popular for a bit, but it just became un- unwieldy.
2: That's exactly right, you know. Um, so I think that's that's really my my take on on the whole thing. Um, and as, uh, as, as we gained that kind of knowledge around cloud, we started to realize that, you know, the, the, the other key driver behind the industry, of course, is speed. It's all about time to market, and it's all about getting features into production. And when you look at the, the kind of uh, the, the way that uh, microservice-type systems operate, uh, you can see that that's a key driver for that architecture, right? That I can replace and scale a single service uh, without perturbing the rest of the system. And I think oh, that's Exactly. Drivers behind uh, behind the growth of microservices.
1: Yeah, and I, and I think the key point behind microservices are and everything that you're you're saying is is it's a functional access point. Uh, it's got to be small and very uh, pointed uh, in what it does and the the um, parameters, if you will, the 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 properties that expose it exposes and returns. I mean, otherwise, uh, you just end up with a, a monolith again.
2: You, well, yeah, the worst, actually, you end up with a distributed monolith, which is uh, the worst. <laughs> world, yeah. So for me, um, when I'm designing uh, these types of systems, there is there is one lesson from, from the OO world that I do bring across, which is the single responsibility principle. Okay. Yeah. I think that's a good kind of rule of thumb for determining what my microservice should do um, you see people kind of sweating it. How many lines of code should I have in a microservice? Is, is 1,000 lines too much? Should I have 500? Should I have 100? It's irrelevant. The, the key thing is to to understand the responsibility boundaries of the service um, and make sure it does one thing. Right. Uh, and if you apply that rule, uh, you won't go far wrong.
1: Excellent. And uh, uh, where have you seen, uh, have you uh, done this? Have you helped uh, systems migrate in, in this way?
2: Yeah, it's a it's a big part of what I've been doing the last two or three years. Actually, probably four years to be honest. Um, we, uh, as part of my my kind of consulting uh, work with Nearform and now in, in for Theorem, uh, we would help and still do help customers uh, with their legacy migration. Um, so typically, what we find is large, complicated code bases. Uh, in fairness, you know, they've been in production, uh, they're commercially successful, but usually there's some key event, uh, maybe external competition or, a, you know, a, a significant systems failure that drives the company to say, OK, enough is enough. We've been piling hack upon hack upon hack. Yes. Uh, how we need to get out of this. Um, so that's when we come in and, um, and begin an analysis of the code base, uh, understand what the what the key problems are. And uh, really try and salvage the the, 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 kern- the kernels of value within those code bases, because normally there's there's bits of value in there, huge value, because it's it's code in production. Um, so it's about peeling peering off the outer layers, um, creating uh, services and areas that can change rapidly whilst preserving the uh, the more stable um, value areas in the code base. Um, it's... It, it's a bit of a black art, I guess, uh, because it does take a a, a certain amount of uh, analysis before you can, uh, you know, be effective in in that job.
1: Yes, absolutely. And have, have you have you find? I mean, now I'm kind of veering into a topic that I wanted to cover a little later on, but I'm just so keenly curious on this. Um, have you found any patterns? that you can you know, derive when looking at uh, a, a large um, a code base you know, from different vendors that uh, becomes apparent on how they need to um, transition their code base?
2: Yeah, well, uh, that's a very good question. As you, as you know, we're doing some research in this area. Um, so at, at the moment, uh, the way we do that is is, is pretty manual, right? And it, and it requires analysis of the code, typically using um, some static code analysis tools to understand, you know, graphs of code structure and the interrelation between between objects um, and then running running unit tests and understanding the code base at a kind of fundamental level. Yes. Uh, but um, we, are, we, we currently have a research project in flight with um, an Irish university uh, and another company as a consortium to apply uh, machine learning to this very problem, um, which is to uh run extract and run analysis on the code and try and understand where we can spot patterns that are then suitable for for extraction as services um and the the way we're approaching that is is obviously one by doing um static analysis on the codebase um which gives us some some notion of clustering and then the other the other part is to do a lot of dynamic analysis in other words run the end to end tests um, generate a lot of data uh, in the form of um, sampling stack traces um, and pair those two up to spot uh, spot patterns and clusters in the code that which uh, which then suggest uh, perhaps this is an area that could be extracted as a service so it's an interplay between kind of machine uh, algorithms and then human uh, human uh, thought and um, understanding I guess but we're pretty early in that research project right so um, right but it i have to say it's, it's a very, it's a fascinating area and, and you know um early, early indications are that uh that, that there is um, something of value there
1: excellent because i'm really keen on seeing seeing that coming to fruition um there's uh, i even in my own experience uh there is definitely a pattern in there um now you know it's 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 really more of uh seeing if what kind how that pattern progresses and Proliferates beyond what i've seen, and that's what I'm really keen on seeing what your research is going to going to bear fruit on.
2: yeah, exactly. I mean you know one of the thi- one of the problems that I'm sure you see and we see as well is that um, you you'll be you know the, the current head out ar- chief architect or whatever in the company is able to walk you through the code, but he or she may not have been around when half of the code was written, um, and therefore there are kind of dark areas in the code base which over time, no one really knows what they do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or, or who, who uses them. <laughs> exactly, you know? Um, and that's, that's a real problem, right? Because, yeah. uh, you know, um, so as part of what we need to do, do we, you know, going in and doing all of that manually is, is a huge amount of time, mm-hmm. whereas if you apply these techniques, um, it, it should accelerate that process, right? Uh, that's, the, that's the expectation anyway
1: yeah i think well we've run into this uh at at my current client and other clients is is looking at the code and understanding um how it's accessed and used when you have um uh, code that is service based and can be consumed by different applications uh and those applications then have have their own life it's you know, you're you're looking at a, a landscape of of applications, and evolution of use, and some access points that are really old, and some are new. And you know, the applications that are using them are also dated. So, trying to find out and understand what the current state of the entire infrastructure is and how it all access or works is an
2: interesting problem it's it's certainly uh, yeah, the real world is messy, right? Uh, that's, uh, that's certainly uh, certainly true, but there's huge value in those transformations, right? I mean, because what one approach and, and we deal with customers who are in various states of transition from on-premise uh, through to you know colo, virtualized machines um, to to some running on cloud. Um, and you know one approach is just a lift and shift, but that's certainly suboptimal um and certainly for, for, for depending on the on the compute load uh the costing is it can be prohibitive just to lift and shift um right. and so the aim is to to break up and you know if we if we can provide a service or even serverless based uh version of the system then the, the cost base can be uh, dramatically uh, changed uh for, for the customer
1: And that's actually a a really good segue. Um, I want to get us back into talking about um, microservices and how those evolved into um, becoming software as a service, infrastructure as a service, cloud services, and what the whole serverless architecture is. So uh, maybe if you could sort of touch touch us a little bit on, on that topic before we go to a break
2: yeah sure um so we're 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 big uh users and believers in serverless. Um, it's something that we apply um, by choice uh, for our for our clients uh, in a greenfield scenario certainly uh, but increasingly in those migration scenarios we apply serverless. I think the key thing to understand is that serverless is not just uh, cloud functions, it's not just lambda functions. Um, it's 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 a whole lot more than that, um, and I think when we come back from the break, we can we can talk about the the kind of nature of a serverless stack and what that would look like.
1: That would be excellent. Thank you very much, Peter. We're going to have our quick break. We'll be right back with Peter Elger, who's uh, co-founder of Four Theorem and CEO, as well as the author of AI as a Service. Look for his book, uh, Peter Elger and Eon Shan- Shanahy on Meep. Publishing. We'll be right back. Thanks for your time on Top.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Art of Software with Martin Lacey. To connect with the show today, you may call into one 866 Four seven two five seven nine zero. Again, that's one eight six six four seven two five seven nine zero. If you'd prefer to send an email, you may send it to m.lacy at lacytechnology.com. Now, back to The Art of Software.
1: Hi, welcome back to The Art of Software. Today, we're talking to Peter Elger uh, for Theorem, and we're talking about AI, artificial intelligence, uh, AI as a service, how to incorporate it into your business, into your business software, and what AI really is and the whole landscape of uh, artificial intelligence, the evolution of software to that paradigm. So uh, welcome back to the show, uh, Peter. Um, why don't we just continue on with serverless architecture and walk us through how we've evolved into AI and what AI is all about.
2: Sure. Uh, so, some fairly big topics. That's a big ask, so I'll do my yes. very best. A <laughs> <It's> huge <laughs> ask. Let, let's, start with, uh, let's start with serverless architectures. So um, I, I guess, I, I actually, you know, both topics are really tied in, in, in one, uh, one thread. And, and I do a talk, uh, from time to time where I ask the question um, if I had a piece of paper and I could fold it and fold it again and fold it again and keep folding it uh, it's a theoretical piece of paper obviously but say it's like a mill um, a millimetre thick or whatever how many times would I have to fold it for it to reach the moon um, I'm sure you probably know the answer right
1: uh, yeah I've, uh, it's either 7 or 11 I can't remember which
2: no it's actually 42 it's a little bit 42? Bigger. Yeah, but it's still a lot smaller than, than you'd think, right? Because most people think it's hundreds of thousands, right?
1: Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs>
2: the, 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 the reason is because it's exponential. And we don't think exponentially as humans, right? We have a bad time with exponents. But if you look at what's been driving um, both AI and, uh, and, and the growth of serverless, um, it's, it's, it's an exponential law. Everyone knows it. It's called Moore's Law. But I think we still, as humans, don't quite grok the rate of change and, and, and what an exponential rate of change means. Mm-hmm. And that which means that if if you actually look at the trends, uh, what you'll see is the unit of scale that we deploy has been dropping, right? So we've gone from very kind of as we as we were talking about earlier, large monolithic code bases to, you know, SOA type architectures through to microservices. The next logical transit or you know, in containers, Right. The yeah. next logical transition of unit of scale is is the function to deploy just functions. Right. Right. Now, this is more than that. But that's one interesting trend you can look at is is the drop in the unit of scale. Now, that's good for us as software engineers, because it means the unit that we have to come like, and kind of load into our brain and reason about is much smaller. Right. So that's, that, that's one good thing. Yeah. Um, but within that context, you, you kind of ask well, what, is, what is serverless and what a serverless stack looks like. To me, what it means is that um, I am not running any of my, my infrastructure. So if I want a database, I talk to a serverless API, and that could be a NoSQL database. It could be a relational database. could be a graph database. Um, but I have an API that I can talk to, and I, and I pay per use. If I want to um, have a, a login system, um, I connect to an API that does uh, that, that provides all that login security for me. So an example would be AWS Cognito, right? Okay. So the entirety of my stack can be torn up um, with a script. Uh, so using a tool like um, Terraform or uh, CDK or something like that, all, all of my infrastructure lives uh, within Git, and I can play it into my environment, um, and I don't have any... Um, any configuration to do, I play my entire stack in, and I continue then that CI/CD process of uh, playing functions and changes uh, into that stack. Does, does that does that kind of suffice, or do you have any questions around that? No, no, that 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 that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so then, then with regard to, to kind of um, machine learning, um, which I guess is the second thread that we're trying to we're weaving in this book. Yes. Um, Many people are kind of surprised uh, by the, what, what seems like a sudden explosion in artificial intelligence. Um, but if you actually wind back and look at the, the history of the development of, uh, of AI, uh, there's been a lot of work that's been bubbling under the hood for, for quite a long time. Um, so if you go back to, I think the first, um, the first machine was called SNARK. I forget what the acronym is. Uh, but it was a valve-based uh, system, um, so SNARC I think is the uh, is the acronym, and it was made out of like glowing tubes and valves. But it was a, an early kind of um, attempt to build a learning machine uh, to control a, a robotic mouse. And okay, I think that back in the fifties, right? Yeah, so, w- all of this kind of research has been bubbling away under the hood with the development of um, things called perceptrons, and I will touch on a perceptron, what a perceptron is, in in a minute. Um, through the 80s and, and kind of early 90s, if you recall, expert systems like Prolog. Yep. Yep. So Prolog was, was a kind of rules uh, processing engine. And that, again, was an outgrowth of that kind of AI research. At the time, there were kind of two fields. One was more, more around um, driving neural net and perceptron research, and the others were around rule-based um, type processing as right, you wind right. through, as you wind through the the nineties into the early noughties, what you find happening is that some, um, a, a, again, a renewed interest in in AI, um, and that really occurred because we started to see the compute power available to 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 realise the the kind of early promises. Um, if you look back over the history, there were two periods that were referred to as the AI winters, um, and those came about because. People were were very um, were, were overjoyed that they've made some results, and they thought they could they, that there would be much more progress. And then progress just stalled because of a lack of compute power. Um, right. And then basically the research funding dried up, and then you were into an AI winter. So there were two of these. But since we've moved it that through that period, and the compute power has become available, uh, we've started to sing, see things really take off. So you know, the Watson beating um, Kasparov, right? uh that was interesting uh but when you look at the, the real breakthrough was uh was alpha go okay right um, and the reason why that was was um so important uh is that um to play chess i think and I, I might be slightly out in my exponents here but in chess there's about 10 to the 10 to the 70 game states that are, that are available yeah um, yes
1: yeah i remember that in your book
2: yeah right, yeah yeah Whereas in go there's like uh, 10 to the 170 or something yes so it's possible with algorithmic tricks and uh, to, to create a computer that uh, you essentially programme to be a chess expert but it's not possible to uh, program a computer to be a go expert because there are just far too many game states and therefore it truly had to learn uh, the game of go and that's why that was such an exciting breakthrough. Uh, it was, uh, it was uh,
1: Put that into, into context, uh, or for people to understand the, the massive scale of, of, of this computational problem, uh, the number of possible game states, uh, that, that large exponential number, is, is larger than the number of particles in the known universe, correct?
2: <laughs> well, by a huge amount, actually, yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. The number so, of particles in the known universe is something like 10 to the 80, whereas the game states in Go is 10 to the 170, right? So. Yeah. Gives you an idea of the scale of the, of the of the problem and why it couldn't be programmed in, right?
1: Right. So it's not a matter of processing all the data; it's a matter of anticipating and writing an algorithm to to be be, be able to sort of predict what the data would be.
2: Exactly right, and that's why it was it, it, it was training. Um, but at the heart of it, I guess, you know, there's a lot of kind of um, myth around. AI and what AI is right Um, but when you think when you get to the kernel of it um, just like a a, a human neuron is quite a simple thing right we don't understand just carry out that we don't understand consciousness we don't understand how these things arise uh, we don't understand that emergent behavior in our brains but if you get down to the single neuron level it's quite simple right you have uh, you have dendrites and, and then an axion and signals come in and the nerve either fires or doesn't fire and makes connections to, to other, other nerves and that's uh, that's how we model things in, an, uh, in a neural network uh, we use right. software biochemical reaction biochemical interaction yeah but in a machine we, we use a, a, an abstraction called a perceptron um, and essentially that just has inputs in um, and it can have an, a, you know a number of inputs into it um, and each of those inputs uh, is weighted. Um, it, there's then a bias applied to the sum of the, the inputs and weights, and then an output, and that, that's all it is. You just have a lot of them, <laughs> and when you have a lot of them, that's where that emergent behaviour starts to come come from, right? By having many, many neurons, uh, many, many perceptrons, sorry, connected in, in in many, many layers. Hence the term uh, deep learning. Okay. So, but at the end of the day, all you're doing is adjusting weights and balances. Uh, it's as simple as that. It's it's just code. I know there's many AI researchers that can say no, it's much more than that, but it's not. It's ju- you're just adjusting weights and balances, um, and and tuning activation functions. Um, so it, it's good to kind of remember that because it it kind of keeps you a little bit grounded. I think uh, rather than running off with um, kind of uh, killer robot ideas and so on, right?
1: Well, and that's 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 really, I think, the key point is that it's 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 really a statistical model based, right? I mean, there's there's a lot of analytics going into the deep learning, but in the end of the day, it's it's based on looking at true data sets, making assumptions where there's missing data, and you know that that's where the AI comes in, is filling in those the missing data points.
2: Uh, not not exactly, no. It's, no. It's- no, it's about um, what you're trying, what you're aiming to do in in when training a network is to adjust weights and balances across the network to to um, to find a, uh, a an optimal network to, to take it to do a specific task. So to recognize a, a cat in an image, let's say, or to uh, you recognize something from a from a voice signal. Um, it's but. It, so it's really a, a problem of kind of matrix multiplication and mathematical operations to adjust those weights and balances, and that's just computationally expensive, and that's why you need you know all of that compute power in order for the for the discipline to to have uh, driven forward.
1: So if, if if I were to kind of paraphrase and look at this from a, a vision system um for example and we're using that uh vision system and you, you see it popular now where they're doing facial analysis and things like that um you know recognizing people recognizing cars so is it more that uh, there would be a specific object or function for recognizing a, a vehicle or a type of vehicle and, and a person a, a particular characteristics of their face or one for
2: analyzing their eyes and their pupils and that kind of thing Yes. Yeah, so uh, in, in particular machine vision, which I have to say is not, is not my area of expertise, but within machine vision, uh, you use what, what's called co- uh, convolutional neural networks. So this then touches on a, a kind of a big subject architectures, right? Because how you structure and organize your, your, your neural nets uh, has a, has a bearing on, uh, on the types of problems that you, you apply to. So there's a specific type of um, structure um called a, a convolutional neural network um and and the, the the way that that works is by convolving over an image so they use a lot of tricks to kind of optimize the um how the network is trained and how it then operates in, in production um so uh, i'm afraid it's not my area of deep expertise <laughs> um, but it's certainly um there, there's a lot of data out there on the web and and, and documents on there so if you if, if people are interested in following up go check out uh uh, uh, convonal, convolutional neural network architectures. Convolutional neural network architectures.
1: Very oh. fascinating. Um, so we, when we're looking at deep learning and neural networks, um, what's the data sets that you're using to try and train them or how, how, how are you going about acquiring the, the information to, to make
2: these, um, these systems more um, predictive? yeah no no that, that's an interesting question and um we've we've just finished writing a chapter uh, in in the book uh, on that very topic uh, on how you go about gathering data uh, at scale um, and uh, the the kind of problem that we're we're looking at there is um, uh, scraping scraping web data um and bringing that in and then shaping it so that we can apply um classifiers uh to to that problem now the the approach we take in the book is is not to um just just we're very clear we we, is not to use tools like tensorflow or keras or things like that um the the idea is that um you know ai is now out of the lab machine learning is out of the lab and can be consumed as a service so, you know, the the message really for, for day-to-day software engineers, amongst which I, I count myself one of those people, uh, is that you can achieve uh, business results quickly by consuming AI services. You don't need a PhD in machine learning. Um, and that's really kind of what we take you through uh, in, in the book, right?
1: Yes, exactly. And that, that's kind of where I'd like to kind of uh, kind of lead us into for for the next segment okay. and talk about um, maybe if you could broach a topic about how, how the software how how the software can now take advantage of these uh, AI as a service capabilities and how we can use them not only to enhance existing software and sort of stretch the boundaries of what it does. And certainly a lot of, there's a lot of examples of companies using AI within their, their sales model, for example, um, and uh, using it to help transform or enhance existing software.
2: Certainly. Yeah. No. That's a that's a very interesting topic to talk
1: about. So I guess we're going to maybe. We'll let's let's just broach the topic briefly before we go and go into into break.
2: Sure. Uh, so yeah, absolutely. As I said, um, the, the the notion is that you, if you actually go and look uh, at the major cloud providers. So if you look at AWS, uh, Azure, Google. Uh, they're in a bit of an arms race around providing AI and uh, machine learning tech to mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to us, right? Um, I did a I did a count in November of last year, I think it was, um, and there's about 120 odd services now across a number of different vectors, not just machine learning, uh, but each one of them had like 10 uh, over 10 different machine learning services available. Um, so with with that capacity there. Um, Your real starting point for augmenting any business platform uh, with machine learning services should be to go and look at what's off the shelf. Uh, So don't go reach for TensorFlow and figure you've got to work for three months uh, (laughs) or call in uh, someone to do custom training. You may not need that. It may be available off the shelf for you to go use. Uh, If it's not immediately off the shelf, then uh, you you may be able to do some some cross-training um to to adapt the, the the models that are available to your purpose uh so yeah. that's that's definitely a topic we can we can talk about
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I've, I've used some of the um, add in functions or the Azure uh, models to do some analytical processing for financials, um, really some interesting and easy available tools. So it's just got to feed them properly. So <laughs> with, with that in mind, we'll take a brief break and we'll be right back to talk about modern, modernizing your software, adopting AI and using AI to modernize your software. So, thanks very much, Peter. We'll be right back.
0: Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24 7. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Art of Software with Martin Lacey. To connect with the show today, you may call into 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd prefer to send an email, you may send it to m.lacy at lacytechnology.com. Now, back to The Art of
1: Software. Welcome back to The Art of Software. Today, we're talking with Peter Elger, co-founder and CEO of 4Theorem, We're talking about AI, modernizing uh, your software applications, using AI and using AI to modernize your software applications. So we've had a lot of talk about the evolution of um, artificial intelligence, uh, evolution and revolutions of software change. And uh, now I think we're going to break into um, a little bit more understanding of how to apply um, AI and certainly talk about, um, uh, Peter's book and how it, it really walks you right through the whole steps. It's really quite awesome. So I r- highly recommend that. Um, so uh, Peter, let, let's, let's continue on and talk about, um, uh, how, how we can apply, um, AI within our business applications and some of the research and projects that you've got going on.
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, happy to do that. Um, so, I, I guess the the, the message the, the message is that it, it's not as hard as as you might think it is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, any developer that's familiar with, with um, managing a data, you know, managing calls to a database and calling APIs can get on board with this technology, right? Uh, that's really the key message I wanted to get across in in, in the book uh, is that it's now accessible um now yeah you have to understand some some concepts but uh you you can work at that kind of very fairly high level this technology and and be very successful it's almost Uh, like plumbing exactly like plumbing it's assembly right uh uh, absolutely you don't have to build the boiler you just have to wire the boiler up right Uh, exactly put in a pipe here pipe there make it look pretty Exactly right. Um, so, for for example, um, in 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 the the second chapter of the book, we build a cat detection system. Um, in, in and this is something if you were to follow along with the code, um, and basically so this is a serverless application that goes off. You point it at a web page, it'll go off and scrapes some web pages, and it'll tell you where it's found images of cats in those pages. Um, yeah. And that's, you can build that um, serverless uh, in in a few hours uh, just by following along with the book, right? So that gives you an idea of the the kind of power that's in there. Um, In one of the later chapters, um, we examine, uh, we have an entire chapter on how you can uh, apply um, serverless AI to your legacy uh, platforms. And we go through a couple of um, interesting examples. So one example is, is uh, around uh, KYC. Um, a lot of organizations uh, have a need to um, extract information from utility bills or scan passports uh, right. and information from those. Yeah. Now, we, actually, we actually worked on a project that, that uh, did some of this uh, about a year ago. And uh, we were able to, we had to actually put together uh, some OCR libraries, so optical character recognition libraries. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and do a whole bunch of math and algorithms to figure out um, proximity of text fields to to one another based on coordinates, and then use that to extract information right from a from a standard document. Uh, this year, uh, AWS just launched a service called Textract. Extract. Uh, <laughs> does all of that too, right? Who, who would have thought, right? But of course. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, so in um, so in the book, we take you through how to use Textracts, right? right? Um, and it it, it it's just supply an image um, into an S3 bucket, um, call your text API, and get back your fields uh, name name value pairs. Um, it really is kind of that that simple. Um, and, and just to imagine the power of that technology, because I can tell you it wasn't easy to build that, you know, from, from raw pieces. Um, mm-hmm. fact, a side analogy: my uh, my my co-author Owen. Uh, gives a great analogy he does a talk and um, in that he shows a picture of a a toaster this melted toaster right and uh, everyone's looking at this toaster going what's what's going on there and it what he's referencing is this ted talk that this guy did where he decided he was going to go build a toaster from first principles Uh, and that meant actually going and mining copper ore and refining oil for the plastic pieces right yeah yeah he plugged it in and it melted, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's part of the experiment, part of the journey. <laughs> right, right. But, but the point is that you can buy you can buy a toaster in in your local hardware store for uh, five bucks, right? Whatever. Yeah. So, but we all stand on the shoulders of giants, right? And, and again. By adopting serverless platforms and, and just adopting AI, we stand on, on the shoulders of all of these other software engineers and experts that have built the technology for us is the point, right? Yes, uh, yeah. So remember the toaster, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's a reason for adoption. <laughs> there's a
2: reason, right? Exactly, right? <laughs> and uh, in the, uh, there's another example that we do, which is a, a bit more involved, right? So we go through a number of patterns, uh, of how to apply to existing platforms. And, you know, it, it depends on the level of connectivity. Sometimes it can be, I just want to, I just need one single job carried out and it's going to be fairly synchronous, in which case you can build a simple API, connect uh, to, your, to your cloud service, secure that down and you're, you're integrated. Uh, it, it, in cases where you have much more data to, to work with, then we recommend using a more kind of stream-based approach so uh, adopting a technology like Apache Kafka um, or uh, Kinesis uh, or similar streaming technology. And we, we, we go through an example in the book of building a full data processing pipeline uh, with Kinesis. Right. And uh, that uses uh, 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 AWS Comprehend. And it uses Comprehend to do sentiment analysis. But then we also then cross-train Comprehend to do uh, document clustering. Um, so the use case there is to say uh, we take a bunch of review data from Amazon um, which is a public a public data set um, and we feed it through our pipeline and at the end of the pipeline we've identified um, which product category it is and whether it's pro- uh, positive or negative sentiment um, and if it's a negative sentiment then we send it to the email address of the department that should be handling that so the idea is to give you is to give an idea of how you can kind of replace that kind of human drudgery uh, with an automated AI-driven um, uh, pipeline process,
1: and of course, you can apply that with that using a large data set for your for your learning exercise. You can apply that to whatever private private data that you have, uh, and and yield the same results.
2: Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, we're we're giving an idea of what can be done. Uh in really trying to kind of show the art of the possible with this technology, um, and it, it's down to you to kind of figure out how that fits in your own. Uh, context, but, um, you know, increasingly, uh, increasingly there, there's need for it. Um, you know, where, wherever we go on engagement, it's usually the first piece is how we build a platform. Great. Uh, because I want to, I want to bring AI up on this down the line. Great. Okay, fine. What do you want it for? I uh, don't know yet, but I'm sure I will. Right. So, <laughs> I'm sure you've probably come across that as well. Right. So yeah, yeah. It's oh yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> a rush to adopt. I'm not too sure why, but we got to have it. You've got to have it right,
2: and you know, it, you, maybe you do, maybe you don't. But the technology is there; it's real; it's out of the lab, and uh, it it can solve big problems for you.
1: Yeah, no, there's there's a huge amount of uh, opportunity. Um, it's you just have to have uh, a little bit of guidance. Holding your hand, walking you through, looking at your existing data set to understand that the the true value in there there's uh, you know i'm working right now with Toyota, and there's just an immense amount of data that has potential for for looking at processes and the way things work, so it's just a matter of building the engines to analyze it
2: properly absolutely and most of these most companies of kind of you know medium to, to larger scale are probably sitting on gold mines of data right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's about, oper- part of it's human analysis and then part of it is how do you operationalize those and turn them into, you know, either cost savings or new revenue streams. And application of this technology is certainly uh, a, a, one of the key pieces that we can, we can use in that uh, transformation. You know, it's like, uh, uh, you know, a lot of us, a lot of companies have been embarking on digital transformation journeys and we've certainly been helping a lot of them. And as they start to get through phase one of that transformation, they're now generating lots and lots and lots of data. So the next part of the story is, well, how do we, how do we now get more of a return on investment out of that data, right? Um, yeah, exactly. Really interesting piece, right?
1: Yeah, there's just a huge amount of data now that's you know we've been systemized and people have been adopting systems for uh, you know past 30 40 years that's a lot of data that companies have uh, behind their 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 fiefdom
2: oh a- absolutely right and uh, the the value in there is uh, is waiting to to be extracted right
1: <laughs> in a lot of
2: cases um, so and it's, it's a fascinating area to work in I have to say yeah um, so uh, the, I th- I did, the other thing I did want to mention was that as uh, along with the book, um, we've, uh, we've also been working on some open-source uh, software. Right, uh, Slick project. Slick, that's right. There you go. Um, so this is uh, obviously fully uh, open-source uh, MIT-licensed, um, so open to, to take and use as you see fit. Um, but the, the reason we put that together was that we saw a kind of gap um, around serverless. So I'm sure you're familiar with the uh, Ruby on Rails framework. Yes, yeah. Yeah, or or, or uh, things like Create React App, right? Yes, uh, yeah. And what those do, I mean, the, the whole reason those, those ideas were so powerful and so successful uh, is because they help take away a lot of decision-making, right? So uh, previously, okay, I want to build a web app. Well, how, what's my what's my uh, directory layout structure going to be like? Uh, should I use MVC or MVVC or whatever it is? Right? No, yeah. take this and do it. Do it this way, um, and you can you can get a, a web application very quickly uh, building with Rails, right? right? So that's a really powerful idea. Now it becomes painful once you want to step outside the framework and fight it. <laughs>
1: exactly. Well, it's kind of like
2: uh, you know you, you can either. Play play in the sandbox or not play at all. Exactly right. But if you want the benefits of the framework, um, and frameworks you know, like that have their place in in the right context, and, and they mm-hmm. can get real acceleration. So what we what we saw was that there was there was no real uh, open source project uh, out there that was doing a similar thing for serverless. In uh, other words, uh, and when, if you want to build a production serverless application, there's an awful lot of decisions you need to make. Right. Um so what we figured was given our experience of building service applications, we'd cam that all into an open source project. Um so this is really a starter kit. Uh you, you you climb the project um and it can get you a production grade uh deployment within a day. And by production grade we mean like fully production grade. So it this is not something that you take and go and have it running in two minutes. Um, we are working on the local development story for it, uh, but this is something you take and deploy, uh, and you have a, like a you know a really solid um, a template, and that includes things like user logging, registration, CI/CD pipelines, the the whole kit and caboodle that you'd expect to have uh, in, in a in a production uh, grade uh, platform.
1: What what state is it is now? Can can developers uh, like download
2: it, or can they even participate in uh, in the project we, itself? We'd love to get participations uh, participation in it. It's uh, it's up on GitHub. It's public. Go clone it. Uh, go fork it. Uh, and uh, pull requests will be greatly accepted. Awesome! Yes. That would be really cool. So, can we put it, Maybe put a link to that in the in the notes uh, in the show notes. Yes, absolutely. If you can send that to me, I'll make sure that's included. I will certainly do that straight away after, after the show, yeah. Um, and hopefully it's of value to people, you know, um, because life is hard enough. Uh, and if we, can, if we can have a guide, you know, uh, it, it always helps. And obviously we'd love to get learnings back from the community on it as well and, and, and make it, a, make it a, a, you know, a much more useful project that's useful for everyone generally. Well, where where is uh, where can they um, just for quick reference
1: uh, to the listeners where where can they find uh,
2: information on the Slick project? So the short URL is slick s l i c dot app a p p. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, I'll link to GitHub and it'll tell you all about. It. Fantastic. Well, I'll be looking up
1: that as well. Um, so maybe if, uh, just to wrap up uh, or to maybe touch on before we have to complete the show, um, if what's the current research? What are you working on in terms of helping companies um, automate the process of moving their monolithic architecture into a more service-oriented uh, framework?
2: yeah i mean as, as i mentioned earlier we we recently won some uh, some research funding um with the irish government with the companies based in ireland uh with, okay. dublin, city, with uh, dublin city university um who have a very strong kind of machine learning and software uh research uh, capability and uh, what we're trying to do there is to uh, apply machine learning to the whole process of, of software transformation of legacy transformation and um Really by doing, I think as we alluded to earlier, kind of static and then dynamic analysis of, of, of code bases to figure out how uh, what the clustering is. Um, and it really is an exercise in pattern spotting to see if we can spot patterns within those kind of old rotted code bases that can be as extracted as services. Um, uh, because obviously the lift and shift approach uh, is, is suboptimal. Um, and there's, uh, is, I'm sure you're aware, Martin, with, with your work, there's a huge market for people that want to want to get onto cloud, but a kind of hamstrung by legacy.
1: Yeah, exactly, and it's 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 really trying to move uh, not just the code, but the the business. The ideas um, and allow them to embrace this new paradigm, and it's you know it's the the, the whole thought process around it too uh, needs a little bit of a shakedown from a you know business understanding what cloud really is.
2: Uh, yeah, we find that all the time, right? And again, I think just to come back to the toaster analogy, right? Um, we, we do find that, and and you've seen we've seen this kind of resistance um, through throughout the the kind of history of computing, right? Is that Okay, it's got to run on my premises because I need to have that control. Uh yeah. okay, well it might be better in a data center because they've got better network and those guys have like always on power and backup generators so maybe I can relinquish a bit of control and run it uh co-load. Oh I can't. I can't run it on cloud because I, I trust my colo guys. Yeah, but those guys that have the cloud really can hire the best guys in the world as operations people. So it's going to be. It's going to be much more secure and so on. Yeah, okay, maybe I'm better there and so on up through yeah. containers and now through to serverless. And again, you, you know, software guys are. Yeah, but I, I, I'm just deploying a function. But it's a natural. It's a natural evolution. Uh, there's bound to be resistance, but um, I do believe that um, serverless represents a shift to true utility computing um, and that uh, in three years' time, I'll be back on your podcast and we'll be wondering why anyone ever questioned it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe before
1: then. Maybe. We've, <laughs> we've been talking with Peter Elder, co-founder and CEO of 4th Theorem. Uh, there's a permanent uh, 40% discount code for his latest book, uh, AI, uh, AI as a Service. Look for it. Use the co- code Pod sofa 19, P O D S O F A nineteen, and that'll get you a 40% discount. It's been awesome talking with you today, Peter. Again, uh reshare this show with hashtag AI as a service. And uh, the first three uh listeners who do reshare the show with that hashtag will send you a free code to get the code to get the book uh in whatever form you want for free. So thank you very much, Peter. It's been awesome talking to you.
2: Martin, a real pleasure. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed the conversation and and really appreciate you having me on.
1: It's a pleasure. Talk to you soon. Bye now. Thank you for listening to The Art
0: of Software. Be sure to join your host, Martin Lacey, again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of our program on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we talk again, have a great week.